You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. All right, well, Pastor Todd uh, talked last week, and by the way, you say, well, where's Pastor Todd? I have no idea. He's traveling the world somewhere, but, uh, you know, the rest of us stay here and work while he's traveling the world, and uh, he'll say something about me saying that, I'm sure. Last week he talked about, I was not here last week, but he talked, because I was at our church, but he talked about the incarnation, which was God coming in the flesh. And we're in this incredible series on doctrine that I think is foundational. I I think it's super important. It's doctrine that goes the distance. In other words, it's something for a lifetime. It's not just for a moment, something you learn, but it's something that you carry with you. I believe it's the foundation of your faith that is so important, that's rock solid. Um, That's why these doctrines, you want to know what you believe, right? Right? I mean, we want to know, why do we believe what we believe? What, why should I believe that? And today, uh, I believe, is the most important message of all of them, because we're going to go to the cross. Amen? And when we go to the cross, it, it's what it's all about. It's what Christianity was all about. And so, today we're going to talk a lot about this. Um, you know, he talked about God coming in the flesh to work, play, laugh, cry, and live among his creation. And uh, so he took you to Christmas. I'm going to take you to Easter, okay? So I know that some of you are like, time flies, right? You can't believe the summer's almost over. Well, we're going to jump all the way to Easter. I'm going to take you to an Easter service, Good Friday. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of that. Um, I think that one thing I want you to know is I'm not Pastor Todd in the sense of uh, I believe he's just uh, God anointed him in a special way, and he's his uh, ability to break down and, and look at uh, the Scripture and an incredible way. And, and so I'm not going to try to do that today. As we talk today about atonement, uh, I'm not going to talk about limited atonement, unlimited atonement, or unlimited limited atonement, <laughs> or any other of those things. That's not what we're going to talk about. Today, you know what I'm going to talk about? That I was blind and now I see. That's what really matters, right? I mean, I was. I was blind and now I see. And thank God. And hopefully you see this morning, clearly, Jesus. And if you want more information after the services today, they'll have it on their, the webpage. You can go there. You can find more resources that talk about atonement and all those different things. And, and you can uh, have family chats about it. But today, we're not going to focus on those things. We're going to focus on what we know and agree upon in Scripture and, and those things. So that's what I want to kind of do today. Um, we're going to be looking at some theological terms that are, that are, uh, that are big and complicated, but I'm going to hopefully break those down for you and make them as simple as I can and uh, help us all to grab a hold of this. So an overview of today is simply this, um, that Jesus Christ, we have an incredible, loving, holy God, right? Would everybody agree with that? I think we underestimate sometimes the holiness of God, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but we have a holy God who's never sinned, who's perfect. We have a loving God, and that loving God sent his only son to earth, right? Right? He sent Jesus out of extreme love for his creation. And and Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life to die a brutal death on a cross for my sin and your sin, according to the scriptures. True? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's Paul's message. Only to rise three days later, defeating death and hell and sin for us all. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about that event in human history. The greatest event, I believe, that has ever taken place in human history is the cross. It's what the, the Bible pointed to. It's, it's the central focus of everything that God has done. You see, Jesus' work for on, on, the, on the cross is called atonement. That's a fancy word for it. Jesus, our God, became a man to restore a relationship between God and humanity. It's the concept of Jesus dying in our place to pay our penalty for our sins. And it's been expressed in many different ways over the years. But never more clearly in Scripture. Scripture scripture repeatedly and clearly declares that Jesus died as our substitute, paying our penalty for our sin. By offering himself as a sacrifice, by substituting himself in our place and paying the full penalty of our sin, he actually bared the punishment which should have been ours. You see, that should have been us, right? He put himself in our place. 
and he satisfied the Father. And it effected a reconciliation between God and man, and man and, and became our justification by imputing his righteousness to us through faith in his perfect work of atonement. So the foundational truth of Christianity is that Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and in this way he fulfilled the old covenant sacrificial system. He reconciled us to God. He changed our lives forever, and that's the doctrine of atonement. Why did he have to die, you may say? Why did he have to die? Well, it's, it's as simple as our sin, right? I mean, sin. He's a holy God, and God is holy and good and just, and not only feels angry about sin, but he also deals with it. He deals with it in ways that are holy, good, and just. God feels angry because God hates sin. You know, he hates that it wrecks our lives, that it separates us from him. God hates that. He doesn't want that. It wasn't his plan or his desire. And just know that, that God doesn't desire or want you to sin. That God hates sin, and he wants to help you defeat sin in your life. That's his gold goal. Guilty sinners would prefer, likely prefer that God simply overlook their offenses against him. Wouldn't it be easier, right, if God just said, ah, no big deal? No big deal. Sometimes it's easier not to deal with it, right, with our kids when they do stuff that's wrong. You'd rather just say, okay, well, I don't really want to punish him for this one. Maybe next time, right? And then the next time he acts worse. (laughs) And you're like, I should have punished him last time. (laughs) Then maybe he wouldn't be acting this bad right now, right? You see, it doesn't help us to, to let our kids get away with what's wrong. In fact, it's dangerous, right? I mean, because it could lead to more wrong and more danger and bigger and more dangerous things. And that's exactly what we're talking about with God. He understands the damage that sin does in our life. It wrecks your life. How many scandals have we seen, not just recently, but over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years of sin wrecking people's lives, right? Right now, Ole Miss had to scramble within the last month their football program for a new coach. Why? Because a coach was calling an escort service. Oh, the danger of one little phone call, right? One sin. Cost him his reputation, cost him his job, maybe his family, his wife. I don't even know. I don't know the man. But man, one sin. It's a big deal, right? Sin is a big deal in our lives. And I think that if we don't take it seriously, if we don't realize what it cost not just now, but for eternity, if we're not careful, we'll die in our sin, right? And we'll be separated from God forever if we haven't received his forgiveness, his blood today. So let's not lose sight of the cross. As I, as I kind of break down some theological terms and we talk about what the cross did, I don't want us to lose sight of the details or the big picture of God's message that he loves you, that he has a plan for you, that he died for us, that he defeated death and hell and sin. And it's the greatest point, the climax of human history. Nothing greater has or ever will be more important. There's no historical event that will be greater than this event because of what it accomplished. And that's the central message of the Bible. It's atonement. God providing a way for humankind to come back into a right relationship with him. Well, a great place for us to get a picture is Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to kind of just get to see a picture of exactly what took place, kind of a picture of the old and the new at the same time, so you can kind of get an idea of what took place. You know, I thought, as I studied this, and Todd asked me this week to speak on this, uh, Pastor Ed had some complications and, uh, with his health, and so he was supposed to be here this weekend, and and wasn't able to, and so Todd asked me to, and I was like, oh, the cross? Yeah, that's easy, right? That's simple to preach on. And as I started studying it, it got more complicated, and I got more like, oh, man, this is way bigger than I thought. I mean, it's, 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 it's done so much more than I could imagine. In fact, I won't even be able to share with you all that it's done for us. I don't think we'll know until we meet him in eternity all that the cross did for us, Right? I mean, we've tried to figure it out, and the scriptures give us some glimpses into it, but once again, it's kind of like God. Sometimes we like to put him in a box and say, I can figure him out, right? But I don't think God fits in any box, does he? I don't think there's a box big enough to fill God. 
God is so much infinitely more than what we can imagine. And I think it's the same with the cross and the sacrifice and what took place. And some of this today, you're going to go, man, thank God we don't live in the Old Testament. Amen? Thank God that we don't have to have and do the sacrificial system that they had to do. And it should make us appreciate Jesus and the cross all the more, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be all the more sweeter of what he was able to do and accomplish on the cross? So we're going to begin reading together in in chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, Christ sacrificed once for all, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is always a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And I love this, underline this. Once for how many? All. Once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts. I will write it on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. You should underline that, isn't it? Awesome. Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is the west, so far has God removed our sins. Only he could do that. The full assurance of faith, he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us now draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Wow, powerful scriptures, isn't it? Comparing what the Old Testament law had compared to what Christ came and just barely shows us a glimpse of what he fulfilled, that what happened truly at the cross. And I think that's what I want you to see today is just a glimpse of what what took place on the cross. You know, was it just that he forgave us of our sins? What what really happened at the cross? And I really want to kind of remind us of that. So we're going to look at both uh, of these. You see, the writer of Hebrews makes it quite clear that the new covenant required a brand new law. And I love that Jesus makes all things new. Did you know that? Isn't that good? 2 Corinthians 5.17 you're no longer, if you're in Christ, you're a what? What, is, what are you? You're new. The old has passed away. I don't know about you. I love to get, how many like to get new things, right? Open those packages, right? We've been getting lots of packages of, of advertisements and, and different things that we have for our church, the banners that we got to put up. And the other day we were at, uh, out at Adventureland. I came home and in the middle of my yard was this giant pile of boxes. They just threw in the middle of my yard. I don't know exactly if that was the proper spot for FedEx, but that's what they did. Just chucked it all in the middle of my yard. Thankfully, it didn't seem like anything was stolen. I have no idea. But you know, it's always fun, exciting, opening up those new boxes, looking at them, right? I got something new. God has given you a new life. It's not just like a, a beefed up heart. It's not like just a, you know, tied up, sewed up, 
fixed up. It's new. God's given you new life in him. And so the old covenant had an inaugurator, Moses. It was sacrifice and the blood of animals, a priesthood, a city, which was Jerusalem, a set of laws, the Mosaic law. But the new covenant has the same components, but each radically different. The new covenant was inaugurated. It has Jesus, not Moses. And he sanctified everything with his own blood, not the blood of animals. The Levitical priesthood was done away with in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and was replaced with an everlasting priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, of which every born from above believer is a part. I don't know if I had, did we have that, uh, did that picture come through? Nope, it didn't. I had a picture that just kind of explained the old and the new covenant. The old covenant being static and written on stone, the new being dynamic and written on our hearts. The old covenant being glorious, but the new covenant being more glorious. The old covenant was to end, but the new covenant will never end. The old covenant was a ministry of death, but the new covenant is a ministry of life. The old covenant was a ministry of condemnation, but the new covenant is a ministry of reconciliation. The old covenant was powerless to save, but the new covenant is powerful to save. The old covenant was of the flesh, the new one of the spirit. The old covenant was the law of Moses. The new covenant is the law of the Messiah. The old covenant was the law of sin and death, and the new covenant was the law of the spirit and life. The old covenant was a shadow. The new covenant is substance. The old covenant was many sacrifices. The new covenant is one sacrifice. The old covenant was yearly atonement. The new sacrifice is eternal atonement. The old sacrifice was in an earthly tent, a tabernacle, but the new one is in a heavenly tabernacle, right? That's our home. That's our place. And that's just a small glimpse of some of the differences between the old and the new. In, the, in, the, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, um, it's described very clearly, uh, the Hebrew word Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was the most holy day of worship in the Hebrew calendar. And so it's what we find, and it may seem archaic and antiquated, um, because we don't have blood sacrifices, right? I mean, we don't have to do that. And so it's really sometimes odd or hard for us to understand just what they went for or what they went through just to have their sins sent away, not even permanently forgiven, but sent away, as we're going to see here in a second. You see, what I want you to understand is that the Israelites were really no different than us because they needed a Savior. Amen? We needed a Savior. They worship idols. We worship idols. Amen? Do we not? Our idols may not be what their idols look like, but we do the same thing. They were disobedient. We are disobedient. And so I want you to see that there's so many similarities that we have with the Jewish people and with God's people. So to address the people's sins, God set up a system of animal sacrifices in which the people provided cattle, sheep, and doves to be killed. You see, because sin required blood sacrifices. And only Aaron, the high priest, could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to intercede for the people directly with God. And you're saying, why blood? You know, the Old Testament uses the theme of blood to prepare people for the coming of Jesus to die for our sins. And the first thing I want to remind you of, that shed blood reminds us that sin results in death. And then secondly, God is sickened by sin, which causes death. In fact, it was God who shed the The first blood in human history, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did he have to do? He had to clothe them. He had to kill one of his creation, and he clothed them with that. Once again, a picture of the future of Jesus. Atonement involves the substitution of life for life. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, atonement is clearly an action of God and not of man throughout the Bible, but especially in Acts or Leviticus chapter 16. Here God gives Aaron precision, precision or precise instructions concerning how he wants the sacrifice to be made, down to even the clothing that he's to wear. I mean, everything that he has to do. And if he did anything wrong, what happened to Aaron? Anybody know? He died. He had to do it exactly the way. He had to be this perfect, try to be this perfect sacrifice, which obviously he could never be. 
The purpose of the ritual was made in Leviticus 17 is to cleanse you from all your sins. That's what was the goal. It was restoring a right relationship with God. Israel is reunited to purity to its God by the atoning sacrifice for sins. And there's a couple features that distinguish that day of worship. First, it was the one day of the year that the high priest, the only high priest, entered that holy of holies, the tent of meeting, where he presented the sacrificial blood as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And inside that holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, a box that represented the resident presence of God. And he sprinkled the blood on the lid or the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sin for the priest and the congregation. And second, it involved a ceremony that involved the expulsion of a living animal from the camp, traditionally translated a scapegoat. The high priest would place his hands on the goat and confess the sins of Israel, and it symbolized the transference of the people's sins to that goat. And therefore, the goat sacrificed, the goat sacrificed and the living scapegoat showed that the goats were substituted for the people, and they bore the penalty of sin. Thus, the term scapegoat that we've all heard to this day. You see, the symbolic import of the sacrifice is so detailed that in three different actions it was necessary to display. The sacrificial death of the first goat showed clearly that the offense of sin required death. It required death. It required the blood. The second second goat was set into the wilderness and the sins were laid on it to emphasize that sins will be removed from the person and the community as far as the east is from the west. They wanted to get rid of those sins. And the burning of the sacrifice just shows this, that God has ultimate power, the power of God over sin, completely destroying it so that it can bother no more. But the bottom line is, none of that was permanent. None of that could have permanently forgiven the people. You see, sin in the Bible is described as transgression of the law and rebellion against God. And ever since Adam, the whole human race has groaned under the awful weight and bitter penalty of it. And all sin is a result of our rebellion to act independently of God. And sin is the reason that we need an atonement. The theme of blood finds its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus into her uh, human history. If you remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he say the first time he saw him? Behold the what? Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. You see, there needed to be a lamb that could completely, completely forgive us for all time. And it took a spotless, perfect lamb of God. It was accomplished when Jesus was on the cross where his blood was freely flowing. You see, 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. I think this, you know, as we look at the old and the new, sometimes we get caught up in all that it means or could mean, but the bottom line is that it means that God loved you. That God hates sin and he loves you. And that God had a plan from eternity past to come and meet and defeat sin on that cross. And you know, I thought about today going back and and so many of us now have seen the passion of Christ that movie, and we've seen him be whipped, and we've seen the blood, and we, we've heard about the cat of nine tails that was used, and the form of torture that literally uh, many people died from before they ever made it to the cross. And it's just tough for us sometimes to go, okay, we've heard it, we've seen it, we know what it is, but, but to revisit it, I think it's something that we should do. As we remember the love of Christ, that sacrifice that he made on the cross, Amen? that he was willing to do that for every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit, that he loved you that much, that most important to him was that you had a right relationship with God. You see, because that was the only way that it was gonna be brought right and made right with God is through his sacrifice, through his shed blood on that cross. It brought forgiveness. And you know, as I was thinking about the cross this week, and I'd been reading and studying John chapter 17, 
And, and I want to just kind of read this to you because, you know, at the cross is this intersection of love and hate. God loves sinners and he hates sin. But it's more than that. I, I sometimes, I get caught up and maybe you do too and maybe you've thought of it this way that the cross is all about me, right? It's about what has God done for me? How has God forgiven me? What, what does he have for me? But you know what? God, as he sent Jesus, it wasn't just about Jesus dying for me or for you, was it? It was about his being obedient to his father. It was about him doing his father's will. Listen to what he says in John 17. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence and the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you know that his, his goal is, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying and he was saying, God, not your will, not my will, but whose? Yours. God, not my glory, but whose? Yours, God. And I think what's get lost is that Jesus went to the cross because he loved his father. Remember, there's a loving relationship going on here. And he wanted to do this because he loved his father and he knew it accomplished what the father said it was supposed to. And I want us to be reminded of that. I want us to be reminded that, you know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of who? Self? Or who? God. It's about remembering what the cross has done for us and giving glory to God for that. Not glory for ourselves because we can't save ourselves, can we? Last I checked, the Bible says, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God says there's no way you can get yourself there. So he came down so we could go up, right? So we could have this right relationship with God. But his goal was was not just that. His goal was to glorify his father through it. His goal, goal was to please his father through that. And as a result, we get all these things. We get redeemed, right? We get reconciled. I have about, let's see, seven more pages of notes that we're not gonna get to. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, good, amen. (laughs) We're not gonna get to all of them today. But I want you to see, one of the greatest things that happened on the cross was that he glorified his father. I mean, that's what he came to appease his father, to say, I've paid the penalty, God. I've done what I needed to do, right? I accomplished what you asked me to do. I did it perfectly. He did that for all of us. I think we've got to remember that. At that intersection of the cross. You say, what else happened at the cross Well, let me give you just a few things. Obviously, the greatest is reconciliation, in my opinion. Reconciliation is simply this. It's a change in a relationship between God and human beings. Once we were separated, now we're no longer separated, right? Once we're his enemy, and now we're not. God changed, Jesus changed the relationship. It's the whole work of God in Christ by which man is brought to the place from being an enemy to harmony or peace with God, right? There, there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 5.1, right? I mean, we get a right standing with God. We get into a right relationship with God. I already said 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. But then verse 18 says, now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself. How? Through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, our goal now is to help other people connect with God, to help other people have a relationship with God. He gave us that ministry, extended it to us, and said, now go and do the same. Keep in mind the fact that the need for reconciliation is on the sinner's part. Man became an enemy of God. God never became the enemy of man. Man ceased loving God. God never ceased loving man. 
Reconciliation can never result until the existing enmity is removed. And since there is, since there is no enmity in the heart of God, it must be removed from the heart of man. Amen? That's what has to be removed from us. You see, how is that act accomplished? We see the love of God at work. While God loathes man's sin, his great heart and love yearns for the sinner and moves towards him in an endeavor to effect a reconciliation. We read a stark difference between human and divine love here. You see, human love is expressed in Romans 5, 17, where we read this. For a good man, some would even dare to die, right? But Romans 5, 8 says that God died for who? His enemies. For his enemies. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God. To the death of his son, You see, at the cross, man proved to be the enemy of God. It showed his human hatred against God's holy son. But it was in that very act that divine love was moving towards its object. For there, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And as Jesus was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they just know not what they do, right? For they know not what they do. You say there's still many enemies of God, and you're right, there are. But God has done his part, amen? There's a lot of people who hate God, and I would say many people hate God sometimes because of the people of God, and not because of God. Because they've looked at us, and they haven't seen a people who truly are loving God and loving others, as the Bible says, right? And so here we see that. Man needs to repent and turn to God. To refuse to do so is to reject that reconciliation that was made in Christ. You see, when the Israelites made their sacrifices in one place to the one true God, they would be reconciled. They would experience the made rightness of atonement. That was God's design. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. uh, uh, Colossians, verse 21, chapter 1, speaks of reconciliation of the believers. He says this, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. The reconciliation of all things is future. The believer rejoices that he has been brought back into favor with God and fully restored. You know, another aspect of reconciliation is not just between God and man, but it's between man and man. Now, I know that everyone in this room would raise your hand. Is there anybody that you've considered an enemy or that you have not liked? Don't look at your spouse. That's not a good sign if you did that right now. <laughs> don't look at your spouse. There may be days you wake up and say, think it, think it, but don't say it today, okay? We have enemies, right? You know what God provided at the cross is the ability for us to love people in a way that we couldn't love them on our own. You know that? You know, one of the reasons that I, as I began to study on diversity in the church and, and, and why we wanted to start a, a church that, that kind of focused on diversity is as I was reading in Ephesians, I, I found some aspects of reconciliation that spoke just to that. Let me, let me read to you Ephesians chapter two. It says this, for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. I believe a way to even say it better is Ephesians chapter three, verses four through six, which just says this. It says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the son of men in other generations, or not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Amen. Isn't that powerful? He's saying no more Jew and Gentile. We are one in Christ. You see, Christ brings reconciliation. At the cross is not just forgiveness of our sins. At the cross is not just glorifying the Father. At the cross is also reconciliation between man. I mean, the first sin was committed between Who? Family, right? I mean, some of those fights can be 
Bad, right? Brothers and sisters, and some of you remember some of those. Man, man, one brother killing another. And God has said, at the cross, I've brought reconciliation between Jews who may hate Gentiles and Gentiles who may hate Jews, between Romans who hate Jews and Jews who hate Romans. God says, I've come together and I can bring them one under the gospel, under the blood, they can truly be one. Regardless of nationality or skin color, right? That's the mystery of the gospel that he's brought us and he's called us to a ministry of reconciliation that we're to reach all people in this world. And as we like to say, to reach the world, we want to reflect the world. John 7, chapter 17, he said the same thing. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, some of the greatest witness is our love for others that are different from us, that help people to see that we know Jesus, amen? Because on the cross, did he just die for, for white Americans? The answer is no. Let me give you the answer in advance. If you remember, Jesus was Jewish, if anything. They were probably saying he died for us, right? I mean, But so many times we we lose sight of that picture. It's another aspect or ministry of reconciliation that redeemed Jews and Gentiles unite through faith in the Lord's blood to make one new church and man. It's the the far-reaching effects, just one of the aspects of the atonement. You see, the atonement is so powerful. Its effects are so powerful. It's seen in so many ways. We couldn't explain all of them this morning. Another way it's seen is in propitiation. It's used in four different passages in the Bible, and it's in a very important term. It means to satisfy or appease the wrath of God against our sin. It's the satisfaction or appeasement of God's wrath against sin by virtue of Christ's payment in full for our sins. Romans 3.24, believers in Christ have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. You see, the only way for God's wrath against sinful man to be appeased and for us to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. There was no other method, there's no other way, but God paying that penalty. The whole point that Paul is making here is that God's righteousness is called into question. How can God be righteous when he passed over sins previously committed? Well, guess what? That's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for those sins. He, he's looked at those sacrifices in, lo, what have they, in light of what they pointed to, what they connected to, and they all connect at the cross, the intersection of the cross, the greatest point of human humanity. You see, when a sinner tries to bear his own penalty, he's lost forever. But when a sinner accepts Jesus Christ as a sin bearer, he's saved forever. Amen? The difference lies in the fact that God was behind the atonement. The penalty for sin must be paid by one who is holy if the justice of God is to be satisfied. You see, the secret of God's satisfaction lies in the character of the one who paid the debt for sinners. God was satisfied with the work of the cross because the one who died at Calvary was his son. He described him this way, who knew no sin and neither was there guile found in his mouth, who was without sin, inherited or personal, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. It doesn't just say he died for sin. It said he became sin. Everything that we trivially call sin and think, well, no big deal in my life, God had to become. God became sin. It was the reason that God could not look upon him on that cross for that moment of time that he was separated because the God who deserved to be pure and holy took upon us our sinfulness and paid that penalty for us. He was our propitiation. He appeased God. You see, the truth is everyone but Jesus 
deserves the act of wrath of God. None of us deserves love, grace, or mercy. But since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God, Romans 5, 9. You see, he extinguished the guilt of the sinner by suffering the penalty for sin. Notice this, that it doesn't say that he was, his death was the propitiation, but that he himself is the propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2. 2. You see, God was merciful when he provided for man a savior. And man is saved when he believes in and receives the Lord Jesus Christ. God has paid the penalty of sin on the basis of his mercy. And it's extended to you this day. You see, the satisfaction that the sinner receives from Christ's death is meager compared to the satisfaction received by the Father. The Father was appeased. It satisfied the wrath against a holy God. That's another aspect that Jesus accomplished on the cross. He satisfied that anger. And therefore, he's redeemed us. Redemption means to buy back. It deals specifically with the problem of man's sin, with the fact that man is viewed in Scripture as imprisoned or enslaved because of sin. You see, you're either a slave of righteousness or you're a slave to sin. There's only one of two avenues that you're on in in life. You're either living for the things of this world and, and dying because of it, or you're living for God. There's only two pathways that you have today. And a redeemer is someone who pays the debt for someone else. And I won't go into it, but the, the idea is, is of a slave market. And the sinner's pictured as being in slavery, a bond slave to sin. And that there's no way he can work his way out. That he's sold, understand, he's dominated, he's condemned, he's sentenced. But that Jesus took our place. That he bought us. It's more than merely paying the price. He paid for us in the market. He took us out of the market. He took us out of the market so that we'll never have to be there again or never be for sale again or never be exposed to a lot of slavery again. He makes it so that we don't have to be a slave of sin. Amen? At the cross, we don't have to be a slave to sin. I do not believe that once an addict, always an addict. I don't believe that. Why? Because God says that his power to defeat sin in your life is greater than sin, right? If he's not able to defeat all sin in your life, then he's not God. But as God, he's able to break the bonds of any sin. Some of you are addicted to pornography. Some of you may have some other addictions you're dealing with today. I'm telling you, you can defeat it but not you. The power of the cross can defeat it through you, amen? But you've got to apply that. You've got to believe that, that God has redeemed you, that God wants to free you. You see, the cross consists of far more than just delivery from the penalty of sin. It makes clear that the scriptures that the death of our Lord makes possible deliverance from the power of sin, Listen to Titus chapter 2. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. You see, I'm amazed that people who never change their life but say they've given their life to Christ. You see, so much changed at the cross. Not just the sacrificial system, but the power to defeat sin truly in your life. So many other things happened at the cross to help you live this life that's different from the rest of the world. The question is, have you really surrendered to that? Have you really applied the cross? Is it really a reality in your daily living? Do you recognize that power? I'm here to tell you this. I'd be a much worse person if it wasn't for the power of the cross, amen? So would you. I'd be a worse father, husband, a worse friend, son. You see, I have a lot of regrets, but I don't ever regret God because God has changed me. He has made me better. He's given me the power to defeat sin. Do I always use it? No. I battle it. How many cannot wait till the battle for sin is over? Amen? 
That's going to be one of the greatest, I mean, one of the greatest things when we get to heaven is that we don't have to battle that sin flesh anymore. I can't wait for that day. It is a battle. And listen, don't be deceived. You're in a battle. But it's a battle that's been won if you'll apply for the victory, right? If you'll just let God be victorious in your life, if you'll every day wake up and say, God, help me. Defeat sin for me in my life today. I don't want to be held in bondage anymore. I don't want to live life for myself anymore. God, I want to live it for you. And the cross made that possible. It made it possible for you as he substituted himself for us, as he took our place. You see, God chose a harmless, gentle lamb as the principal animal for sacrifice. He was teaching his people that they were forgiven and spared only because another who was innocent took their place and died for them. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? That's what he's did. He's done it for us. Christ Jesus took the place of guilty sinners in his death. You see, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, the bread that I give, I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And in a second, as we take communion, it says this, this is my body which is given for you. You see, the cup is the New Testament in my blood, which was shed for you. You see, in almost all of Apostle Paul's writings, that Christ's death was a substitution. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be made right with God. And not just right with him for a moment, but for eternity. And that you could live right as well. So some of you, you need to quit making excuses of why I can't live for God or why I don't live for God or why I don't care about the things of God. You see, God has given you every ability within him to do those things, to defeat sin, to walk with him, to love him, to love others, to love that enemy that maybe it's that spouse or maybe it's a coworker or somebody else. He's given you the power to do those things at the cross when he reconciled you not just to himself, but to each other. You know, some days I don't know why God. He asked that question, why, why should God want to save sinners? And the best, the best illustration I can think of is just my own kids, right? I know God made them, but I got to be a part of that. And, and I would give anything for them. And, and if one of them needed a blood transfusion, and, and, and even if they'd been a brat all week long or, or all summer long and you couldn't wait for school to start back, right? I mean, you're looking forward to that. I'd still give my life for them. Even when your son or your daughter has looked you in the face and said, I hate you, you'd still probably give your life for them, wouldn't you? Man, God loves you today. I love that we get to take a pause in July and have Easter. And look at just, I mean, this much of what was accomplished on that cross. This much. But this much is powerful, this much, isn't it? It's so powerful. And every year I go back, Every five to ten years, I go back to my high school reunion, they keep asking me the same question. Are you still doing that Jesus thing? Still doing that God thing? And every time so far, I've said, yep. By the grace of God, yep, I'm still doing it. Yep, I still believe it. In fact, I believe it even more. The more I see who God is, the more I want to love him. The more I want to move closer to him. The more I want to share him with others, right? It's when we get distanced from the cross and the farther away we get and it's harder to see and it's harder to hear his voice when we begin to wander and wonder. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if he's real. You know, he didn't answer that one prayer to to save this person. He didn't answer. And we've got disappointed and we've moved away from the cross and you've walked away and you've forgotten the depth of the love. 
and you've forgotten the sacrifice and you've forgotten all that the cross has provided for you, but all the cross did for his relationship with his father and, and glorifying his father. And so today, I want us, as we, we share in communion today, it's an opportunity for us to go back to the cross. To say, God, you know, your power is amazing. It changed my life. And if it hasn't changed your life yet, it's you surrendering to it today. It's realizing there's a God who died. The gospel is good news only if there was bad news first. The bad news is that you're a sinner and your, sinner, your sin separates from you from God and you will spend eternity without him forever. But you don't have to. You see, because he died on a cross, he sacrificed himself, he substituted himself, he wanted to reconcile us to God, he became our redeemer, Right? And if you'll just put your faith and trust in him and his finished work, as he said at the end, right? It is what? Finished. What was finished? I finished, not dying on a cross. I finished the work that God gave me to save the people that you want to save, God, that you love, that you gave your life for. It is finished. It's accomplished. I've done your work. I've done your will. And today that can be you as you surrender that, as you respond. Whether you believe in limited or unlimited or unlimited, limited atonement. What matters is that, listen, you were lost and you need to be saved. And you can respond to that this morning. You can respond to the cross this morning and the power of forgiveness this morning. I don't think it's a prayer of faith that saves you. I think it's a response to what you've experienced and seen in Christ. As you say, God, I can't believe you did this. You see, it's a real human event that took place 2,000 years ago in history, amen? It's not a story. It's an actual historic event. You can go to the place. I've been to Israel. You can see it, right? And you can put your faith that he did that for you. There's nobody else dying for you. There's no other religion where their leader is dying for you. You gotta give up and sacrifice for them. Christianity is ours. Our God loved us that he came and sacrificed so that we could have eternity. Isn't that a hallelujah moment? Amen? I, just, I, I hope in July we can stop and pause and still talk about the cross and the effects of it and the power of it today.